Welcome to our podcast, SGLT2 Inhibitors Morning Commute, Widening Benefit. Morning Commute is developed in collaboration with At Point of Care and Projects and Knowledge and is part of a continuing medical education series. This independent CME-CE activity is supported by an educational grant from Boeinger Ingelheim Pharmaceuticals and Eli Lilly and Company. In our previous podcast, we looked at SGLT2 inhibitors and their effect on chronic kidney disease in patients with type 2 diabetes. These treatments are showing a wide benefit beyond glycemic control. In this episode, Dr. James Chiduzzi and Dr. Silvio Inzuki will discuss SGLT2 inhibition in cardiovascular risk reduction by taking a look at some of the pivotal clinical trial data. Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash SGLT2 inhibitors 4. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. Dr. Januzzi is a member of the Cardiology Division of Massachusetts General Hospital and is the Hutter Family Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School in Boston. Dr. Silvio Inzuki is Medical Director of the Yale Diabetes Center and is a Professor of Medicine at Yale School of Medicine in New Haven, Connecticut. I am Candace Hoffman, Managing Editor of Morning Commute. Dr. Januzzi will begin our discussion. So... This is Jim Januzzi. I'm glad to be here and speaking with my colleague, Dr. Silvio Inzuki. Um, so Silvio, great to be uh, talking with you on this subject. This is obviously an area that's been changing dramatically um, over the last few years. And, and the SGLT2 inhibitors have become the next really big thing at the interface of cardiology and diabetes, primary care, and other specialties. So I'm really glad to be able to talk with you about this. Um, I guess the first question I'd ask, because what we've learned about SGLT2 inhibitors came from the so-called cardiovascular outcomes trials. So I guess, why don't we start first with how in the world did we get here? How did we get from a reasonably effective diabetes drug to this real game changer therapy that crosses all sorts of disciplines. Well, you know, maybe you can bring the audience along a little bit on this. Well, it's really uh, an important historical point because uh, if you asked me uh, six or seven years ago, would we ever find a specific glucose lowering agent that could have such a dramatic effect on cardiovascular outcomes, I, I would say it would be hopeless because we had been through decades of, uh, of trials uh, both assessing glucose lowering itself and then specific drugs. And uh, it's been very, very difficult to find any impact of either glucose lowering or specific glucose lowering drugs on cardiovascular events. And I think at some point, uh, endocrinologists have become hopeless that we would ever find uh, such an agent uh, to do both things. Now, obviously we can uh, improve cardiovascular outcomes in diabetic patients with lipid lowering therapy, good blood pressure control, um, but it had been the holy grail in our field for a long time uh, to find a specific agent that could actually do both, treat the diabetes, but also have an impact on cardiovascular events. So, so and before you get to the SGLT2 inhibitors, it might be helpful for people to understand the background of therapies that failed or even increased risk. So, so the path to the SGLT2 inhibitor class may be a little clearer. 
Well, for years, obviously, Jim, we had insulin and sulfonylureas. In fact, when I first began training, we did not even have metformin as a glucose-lowering drug. I remember those at, days, Sylvia. Yeah, <laughs> when you look at those uh, trials that have been uh, that have tested uh, SUs and insulin, uh, routinely they were neutral for cardiovascular events. Uh, some observational studies suggested at one point that the sulfonylureas could actually increase the risk of cardiovascular mortality, but actually when submitted to carefully done clinical trials, they appear neutral. So they're terrific for lowering glucose and for reducing microvascular complications, but no impact on cardiovascular uh, events uh, at all. Metformin, I think the verdict remains still out on a drug that's now uh, about 30 years old. Now, there are some studies uh, from the uh, 1990s that suggested a, a benefit on non-fatal myocardial infarction. Um, but those data sets are not robust at all. Small studies, pre-statin era, era, I really don't think we'll ever know whether metformin is a cardiovascular-friendly uh, drug. The TZDs uh, came along in the mid-1990s, and there you have a bit of a double-edged sword. They came onto the market uh, as insulin sensitizers and therefore had the hope of reducing cardiovascular events. But as you probably recall, uh, one of the uh, drugs, pioglitazone, probably does reduce MACE. May have some anti-atherosclerotic properties, um, but the other edge of the sword is this uh, impact on renal sodium handling that leads to an increase in volume and in certain individuals. Um, a lot of them obviously have diabetes and maybe early uh, HEF-PEF could uh, develop heart failure. So you might reduce ischemic events, but increase the risk if you're not careful of heart failure. So you know where is the net net balance of using uh, a TCD? And then came the alphabet soup of diabetes treatments, right? The DPP-4s, the GLP-1s, and the SGLT-2s. And at that point in time, the FDA had become very concerned. Uh, and, and the story is complex, and I don't think we have time to get into it. But there had been some uh, studies and some meta-analyses that suggested, if anything, that drugs that lower glucose could actually have the opposite effect, could actually increase ischemic events. So the FDA uh, really put its foot down. Uh, in about 2008, 2009, and began mandating these large cardiovascular outcome trials, initially designed as safety trials to be sure that these new drugs coming down the pike to lower glucose uh, didn't worsen uh, cardiovascular outcomes. Yeah, and that's, that's really, in some ways, a landmark moment because it's reasonable to suspect that had the FDA not put these expectations in place, we would never have uh, come across the benefits as conclusively as we have for the SGLT2 inhibitors. We probably would have eventually, but with respect to the resounding success of the first of the CVOTs, which we'll talk about in a second, that really opened the door for subsequent findings. Now, it's important for the, the listeners to remember that these cardiovascular outcomes trials, as you say, were designed for safety as well, they were focused more on the so-called atherothrombotic complications. So sure. non-fatal MI, non-fatal stroke, and cardiovascular death is the so-called triple MACE. Mm -hmm. and, and so there were still some questions that obviously um, were not answered by the CBOTs, the cardiovascular outcomes trials, but that obviously opens open the door for studies in, uh, e even after um, but why don't we start first with um, the, the first data that came through for, for empagliflozin from the first of the CBOTs, that being the Empareg outcome study. Sure. That, well, that was a 7,000-plus patient uh, study that really uh, got the ball rolling. Uh, 
uh, it was um, uh, initially announced back in uh, 2015. Uh, and the results were quite shocking. This is the first time that any glucose-lowering medication had been associated with a clear cardiovascular benefit in a high-risk population of patients. All the patients had overt cardiovascular disease. And the three-point MACE outcome was reduced uh, um, by 14%. Not actually a home run, but when you drill down on the components of three-point MACE, uh, there was this uh, surprising huge benefit on cardiovascular mortality, which obviously may be the most important component of, of MACE. It was a 38% reduction in cardiovascular death. And that is something that we've never seen in diabetes trials. In fact, it's hard to uh, to show such an effect on, on CV death, even in lipid-lowering uh, trials, as you know. And then the um, secondary outcome, and as you pointed out, we were super focused on atherothrombosis. So we, uh, along with the FDA, uh, went along with the three-point maces being the primary outcome. But the secondary outcome of heart failure hospitalization, an increasingly important outcome in, in diabetes trials, that was reduced by 35%. And uh, to date, none of the other medications have shown any beneficial impact on heart failure. And as mentioned before, uh, the TZDs, if anything, increased heart failure hospitalizations, as did one of the DPP-4 inhibitors, uh, saxagliptin. Um, but the, um, the, between the cardiovascular mortality benefit, the heart failure hospitalization benefit, and also this uh, interesting improvement in CKD progression, also on the order of, uh, of uh, 35 to 40%. Um, it was really an impressive uh, study, uh, the first in a series of uh, SGLT2 inhibitor trials uh, disclosing the surprising benefit, or I should say benefits, because of the, uh, the renal impact as well. Yeah, that's really a great summary of the, the landmark first study that came out, uh, EMPA-REG outcome. So in order to provide some context for the listeners, um, and the ability to sort of think about the other trials that we'll discuss in a moment. Can you describe who was in the Emperor outcome study? Who, who were these patients? So obviously in these um, uh, cardiovascular safety trials, you want to conduct them during a, you know, a few years, right? A certain reasonable period of time. And therefore you want to focus in on a high risk group of patients in order to accumulate enough events to confirm, indeed, safety of these uh, newer diabetes medications. In fact, the FDA uh, strongly suggested that we would be focused, at least with the initial trials, on a high-risk uh, uh, cohort. So every patient in empiric outcome had established cardiovascular disease. Many had prior myocardial infarction, uh, previous uh, bypass surgery, PCI, strokes, peripheral arterial disease. Only 10% actually had heart failure. But... Uh, more than 99% actually had overt uh, atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. Yeah, that's really an important point because we can start drawing some comparisons to other trials in a moment. The other thing, of course, to get patients into the study was that they needed to, in addition to their usual diabetes care, they had a hemoglobin A1C of 7% or greater. And, and that, that'll be an important point when we start talking about in whom we might want to think about using these drugs, right? But so empireg outcome, big effect on CV death, big effect on a secondary endpoint that wasn't really considered all that in depth, at least. We adjudicated. I was on the endpoint committee. Mm -hmm. We adjudicated heart failure, of course, but we didn't have e ejection fractions. We didn't have a very comprehensive background on these patients, but nonetheless, a really important finding. The second 
cardiovascular outcomes trial of the land was the CANVAS study. Um, and what was seen there? Well, that was with uh, canagliflozin. And it's a bit different than Empereg because they did include, I believe it's about 20% of patients had high-risk uh, features for cardiovascular disease with 80% having established um, uh, uh, cardiovascular disease. Uh, interestingly, the MACE endpoint was exactly the same, 14%. You rarely see that uh, in two trials with two different drugs, although obviously of the same class. Now, the cardiovascular mortality uh, endpoint was not statistically significantly reduced. I think the uh, hazard ratio was 0.87. But they also saw this, uh, again, very striking effect on heart failure hospitalization of 33% relative risk reduction. And also, uh, their definition was a bit different, but this progression of chronic kidney disease was reduced by almost exactly the same by about uh, 40%. So the thumbprint, if you will, of, these, of this class of medication is quickly emerging, that there is a consistent benefit on heart failure, both uh, in established heart failure patients. Again, only 10% in Empereg had a heart failure. I, I believe a few percent more in Canvas may have had heart failure, but the overwhelming population in both of these trials did not have baseline heart failure. And even in that population, there was prevention of heart failure hospitalization, which obviously means you're preventing heart failure, not treating heart failure progression, but actually preventing patients from getting heart failure to begin with. To, from developing incident right, heart failure, right, yeah. Right. And, and you know, the, there are some really interesting uh, epidemiologic data showing that, you know, while atherothrombotic disease is very important, obviously, in patients with diabetes, it's that combination of chronic kidney disease and heart muscle disease that predicts progression to heart failure in patients with type 2 diabetes. And, and, and so this intersection of benefit on progression of CKD together with reduction in heart failure is really a, a, a dramatic um, uh, effect of SGLT2 inhibitors and, and obviously very important. Now, again, in, in the CANVAS study, these were patients with type 2 diabetes, A1C over 7. And in Empereg outcome and in, in the CANVAS study, two different dose levels of the SGLT2s were examined, but it seemed that it didn't matter which dose the patients received, high dose or low dose for each. So EMPA 25 versus 10 or uh, 300 and 100 for CANA. After those results came out and that heart failure impact was seen, the investigators for the DECLARE study scrambled and added a heart failure endpoint to their study, which had not yet completed. Do, do you want to unpack the DECLARE study for people, please? Yeah, as you pointed out, initially they started with three-point MACE as being their primary outcome. But when it was quickly realized that the three-point MACE effect is pretty modest, and in any study, as you're getting um, in uh, relative risk reductions in the 10 to 15% range, you could easily miss on the primary endpoint uh, just by a few events. So uh, the DECLARE investigators did something very smart as they decided to construct a dual primary uh, outcome as, as their, uh, as their uh, dual primary endpoint, I should say. And that's totally legally, statistically, as I understand it, as long as you're making these decisions before data lock, before obviously unblinding of the data. Um, so they uh, incorporated the combination of cardiovascular mortality and heart failure hospitalization uh, as one of their uh, primary outcomes. And it's a good thing they did because uh, with uh, DECLARE, dapagliflozin did miss the three-point MACE. The hazard ratio was 0.93, but not statistically uh, significant. 
but they did hit the uh, CV death, heart failure, hospitalization uh, outcome by, um, I think the relative risk reduction was about 17% in DECLARE. So again, a third trial showing a important impact on heart failure hospitalization. I would also point out that that composite, that CV death uh, and heart failure hospitalization composite in DECLARE was completely driven by the heart failure hospitalization piece of that composite. Yeah, and, and so we see this consistency in a couple of ways. One is the impact on heart failure, but now we go from Empereg to Canvas to Declare, and one could make a good argument that you're talking about a high-risk population, an intermediate-risk population, now a more moderate to lower-risk population, and you see how the benefits um, associate with the baseline risk, which is, I think, an important observation when we start matching um, therapy to risk here. Yeah, m- many more primary prevention patients in, in uh, DECLARE. So as, yes. as you pointed out, the, the risk was going down as we moved from Empereg to, to Canvas and then to DECLARE. And, and also, we should point out that the, cardi- the, the chronic kidney disease outcome was also reduced in DECLARE by adapagliflozin. Yeah. So now and we have three studies uh, showing a very consistent uh, uh, effect on the progression of CKD. Yeah, and what's really fascinating to me about the, the the kidney impact is that that seems less affected by baseline risk. You know, there's, you know, you see the benefit. It may be attenuated modestly in lower risk patients, but boy, it's really there. And as a cardiologist, at least, that to me is a really important finding because as we start thinking about the other applications of these drugs, which we'll discuss in another program in heart failure, that renal protective effect is something to really take into account. Well, we have a few minutes left. I, I want to mention the most recent study, which in many ways recapitulates the same experience we've seen from the other trials uh, with respect to this risk and efficacy um, intersection, that being the Virtus study with ertogliflozin. So what did we see here in this trial? So ertogliflozin uh, proved negative for their primary outcome, again, 3-point mace in, in Virtus CV. Uh, but once again, the heart failure hospitalization uh, result was uh, just as good as with the other studies, about a 30% relative risk reduction. Initially, actually, their progression of CKD outcome uh, proved neutral. Uh, the point estimate was 0.81, so 19% risk reduction, but not statistically significant. But actually, they uh, had a bit of a higher bar in terms of what they deemed progression of CKD. And when they reanalyzed the study, uh, using, I forget if it was the uh, increase in creatinine or the drop in GFR, but it was a, a, a reassessment using uh, the same uh, CKD outcome that the other trials used. Uh, they actually found a very similar effect with urticoplosin. So once again, we see this uh, consistent heart failure effect and this consistent CKD effect. And I point out that the interrelationship, as you pointed out, Jim, between heart failure and CKD is bidirectional. Um, so not only are CKD patients predisposed to heart failure, but once heart failure is diagnosed, uh, there's an increased rates, uh, there are increased rates of the progression of CKD. Now, some of that may be obviously from volume contraction and using potent diuretics, but I think there's an interesting bidirectional relationship between uh, the kidney and the failing heart. Yeah, and that and and that is just a great segue to our last couple of minutes where you know, I'm, I'm not going to give you too much leeway because I think the answer is we have really no good idea, but the mechanism of action is something that many of us have sort of struggled to summarize in a single review article. And it's a little bit hard sometimes to summarize um, 
because it remains unclear. But what what do you think the the highest likelihood reasons for why these drugs reduce risk so much might be? You know, there's so many hypotheses here. Um, I, I'm, I'm a bit simple, and I still think that it's mainly, at least initially, um, a diuretic effect. I think these are unique diuretics in that they do have a naturetic property. The, after all, the S in the SGLT2 is sodium, so blocks sodium reabsorption approximately. And it's been shown that there is an increase in hematocrit when you're using these medications. Uh, we went back into the Empereg database and showed that the biggest mediator, at least statistical mediator, of the benefit on CV mortality as well as heart failure hospitalization ended up being that 3% increase you see in hematocrit when using SGLT2 inhibitors. We think this is mainly volume contraction, although there's a, an opposing view that says that this is related to an increase in erythropoietin that's also been demonstrated with use of SGLT2 inhibitors, presumably an effect on um, energy um, uh, utilization by, by the kidney. Um, but I think the verdict remains out. It could be, at least in part, uh, a plasma volume reduction, offloading of the ventricle, improving heart failure outcomes in that way. But that sounds overly simplistic. And there are probably many other um, mediators of that effect. And we'll find sure. out over the next few years as to which, which ones they might be. Yeah, so there's there's so many hypotheses, of course, and and um, the sodium glucose co-transporter pump is adjacent to the sodium hydrogen co-transporter, and blockade of the sodium hydrogen pump um, results in um, increased resistance to tissue injury in the myocardium as well as in the kidney. Um, these drugs um, restore tubulo-glomerular feedback, and so that may be partially related to their benefits in uh, preserving kidney function through um, effects on the efferent and afferent arterioles. Um, and, and this intersection, as you said, between the kidney and the heart is just so hard to discount. And really thinking about it, it may ultimately be that there are multiple reasons why they reduce the risk. And that may in part explain why they are so consistently good at, at reducing heart failure events across a wide range of um, risk at baseline in these studies. So in the last minute, uh, you know, Sylvia, you're a clinician, I'm a clinician. We see similar patients in many ways. We share patients uh, philosophically, at least in terms of the disease states that they carry. In whom do you think SGLT2 inhibitors might be indicated at this stage? Well, well they're clearly indicated in patients with type 2 diabetes who have heart failure or at high risk for developing heart failure. Um, I think uh, they're also very clearly indicated. We didn't get into the CKD progression uh, data uh, too much uh, today, but they're clearly indicated in patients with mild to moderate CKD in order to prevent the decline in EGFR, which is uh, almost inexorable in these uh, patients uh, with progressive diabetes. So those are the two cohorts of patients um, that I think um, these drugs definitely should be used. I also think that any uh, diabetic patient, type 2, obviously, mm -hmm. with atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease uh, is eligible for SGLT2 inhibitor. Here, you get into a bit of a discussion as to whether uh, they should be assigned to an SGLT2 inhibitor or a GLP-1 receptor agonist, which is obviously another category of medications that also has a very similar MACE effect, probably, or, or I should say, definitely through other mechanisms because they're completely different medications. But at least a, a rational argument can be made for one drug or the other uh, in the ASCVD patient. But I think once heart failure is present, once mild to moderate CKD are present, 
in my mind, it's got to be the SGLT2 inhibitor. Yeah, so that, that's a great summary for, for our clinicians. Type 2 diabetic patients, um, of course, are the patients that were studied in these trials. Patients with type 1 diabetes are at risk for ketosis if treated with an SGLT2 mm -hmm. inhibitor, so they should not be treated, as you said. Um, uh, so SGL, uh, I'm sorry, type 2 diabetic patients with an A1C over 7 or even lower I have taken to discontinuing sulfonylureas to afford the glycemic headroom, if you will, um, mm -hmm. to avoid hypoglycemia. Um, and certainly those patients with CKD and, and heart muscle disease are, are a target-rich environment for, for being placed on an SGLT2 inhibitor. This has a, a been a great discussion, Silvio. I want to thank you so much, and I hope that our, uh, our listeners gained from your knowledge and your wisdom and I have a feeling that there's going to be a lot more to, to learn about SGLT2 inhibitors in, in the upcoming years. So this has really been a terrific walk down memory lane and gives mm. us a, a view of where we're heading in the future. Very good. Thanks for having me, Jim. Thanks so much. Thank you for joining us. Remember to claim your credit and evaluate this program. Please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash SGLT2 inhibitors four. For all the podcasts in this series, please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash cardiology. Cardiology.